another week to hear from God's Word. And we are continuing our series this morning, this, this week, this fourth week, on the solas of the Reformation. If you remember, we first week we did Scripture alone. Scripture is the final authority for faith and practice. Talk about how grace alone, how we're saved by God's grace alone. Salvation is not a wage, but a gift. And then last week, very well, Bernie Elliott led us through faith alone. That we are justified, that we are saved by God, not according to our works, but according to faith. And he very rightly pointed out the fact that faith rests on one particular person. Faith rests on Christ. And so this morning, we're going to consider why Christ must be the sole object of our faith. This morning, we consider Christ alone, solus Christus. For whatever reason, the Latin tense changes from the previous weeks, from sola to solus, and I don't know why. So, <laughs> solus. <laughs> Anyways, if you would please open your Bible to Hebrews chapter 1. We will be looking at the first three verses of Hebrews chapter 1. This is the Word of God. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purifications for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let's pray together this morning and ask the Spirit to help. Holy Spirit, we do come before Christ. And in His name we ask that You would illuminate our minds and our hearts to receive Your Word this morning. Make Christ glorious wonderful, beautiful in our sight that we may love, glorify Him all the days of our lives. We pray and we ask these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Every sermon intro needs a hook. Kind of a self-aware statement. Every sermon intro needs a hook. Something to grab the attention. So the, the pastor, really, who's preaching the sermon that is the book to the Hebrews, the pastor that's preaching the sermon, he opens up with a hook that his audience will understand. Long time ago, and many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. God spoke. Who did he speak to? Our fathers. By whom did he speak? By the prophets. We might think of very clear instances in the Old Testament of the and examples of prophets, right? All of those books that bear the name of the prophet who spoke to the people of that time, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, 
maybe with some that we're a little less familiar with, like Amos and Habakkuk and Malachi, or maybe even a little more obscure, like Balaam and his donkey. To be a prophet was to speak from God. The constant refrain of the prophet was, Thus saith the Lord. Right? A prophet's job was to speak from God. Uh, Sam Storms gives this helpful uh, definition of what a prophet is. He says, A prophet's primary function in the Old Testament was to serve as God's representative or ambassador by communicating God's word to his people. If God wanted to speak, he said that he spoke through a prophet often. If he wanted to tell the people what was coming, a prophet was needed. If he wanted to warn the people of their idolatry and their need to repent, a prophet. This is what a prophet did. They were mediators. They were go-betweens between the Lord and the people. They spoke from God to the people. When God sent a prophet, the people could know that God was speaking to them. But there is an inherent insufficiency in the prophets. First, they were ordinary and sinful people, just like everybody else. Right? We think of Isaiah's words. Woe is me when he encounters God's presence in the temple. Woe is me. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I, speak, and I live among the people of unclean lips. The only thing that made a prophet unique was the fact that God chose to speak through them. Additionally, they didn't even know the whole story. They could only really reveal what God had given to them to reveal. We might think of Elijah, who goes up on the mountain. He's like, Lord, I alone am left in his frustration, in his sorrow. I alone am left. But God says, I've held back several thousand for myself who have not bent the knee to Baal. Right? Elijah did not know the whole story. None of the prophets knew the whole story. And additionally, they were always pointing to some future day. Their, their prophecies certainly found fulfillment in um, some event that occurred within the time of Israel as a nation, but they were always pointing to something future, something, some kind of culmination, some kind of climax. They spoke of last days, last days. And here we read in verse 2, right? But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, right? God spoke this way in the past through the prophets, but now in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, last days. See, the older prophets prophesied of last days, and the time has come. The last days have come. And in these last days, the father, God, has spoken to the people in his son. An indication that God's speaking has come to its culmination 
that God's prophetic revelation has come to an apex in his son speaking. It's the son that comes to mediate God's word to mankind. And he's come to fulfill the office of a prophet and to give the final revelation of what God is like and what God's plan for salvation is ever since before the foundation of the world to reveal the mystery hidden in the types and shadows, but now revealed in Christ, in his person, his work, and his word. Christ, unique son of God. All the prophets were speaking of him before. And there is no reason now for any to come after him. If someone claims to be coming and giving infallible revelation, something new about salvation, something new about God, we ought not listen to them. And we ought not listen to them because of the nature of this prophet, his nature as a son. We continue to read. You see, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. There is in Christ the union of two natures, one human and one divine. And often as you read the scriptures, the biblical authors will speak to one or to the other. There's never really a you know, big flashing lights like, hey, I'm talking about his divine nature now, I'm talking about his human nature now. But you could see it in the language that he's speaking to one or to the other. Here, we have an instance of the author speaking to both. In his humanity, Jesus is the heir of all things. He's the heir of all things. When he comes to complete the work that the Father gives him, and he's ascended on high, he receives all things from his Father's hand. But to his divinity, he is creator God. One with the Father, through whom the world was created. The second person of the Trinity. We see this further elaborated on in this next verse. We read, He, that is Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is divine language. There is no creature that is the exact imprint of God, who is the radiance of the glory of God, who's upholding the universe by the word of his power. This is straight up divine language. We are not talking about a creature. We are talking about God. And that God is the divine son. And we get this language too when we confess the Nicene Creed. And listen, listen to this. Realize how closely the, the church fathers at Nicaea, how closely it relates to even just this passage on its own, right? I believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. Of the same essence as the Father, through him all things 
were created. Jesus Christ is not simply the next prophet in a line of prophets. He is the Son of God in the flesh. And he's come to speak, not just as an ordinary prophet, he's come to speak as God to the people. Not just a medium, not just a a simple prophet, not just a human fallen sinful human being, but as God, speaking God's word to the people. There isn't a more direct revelation of God and his plan for salvation than Jesus Christ come to speak in the fulfillment of the office of prophet. Amen? John Gill, I thought, helpfully stated of Christ that in his office of prophet, he is infinitely preferable to the prophet. He is a son and not a servant in whom the father is and he in the father and in whom the Spirit is without measure. And God is said to speak by him, or in him, because he was now incarnate. And what was said from God should be attended to, both on account of the dignity of his person as the Son of God, and because of the authority he came with as mediator. You need not look anywhere else. There is no other prophet coming to reveal more about God and his plan for salvation. Christ alone is God's final word. Christ is the sole object of our faith because he alone is the fullest revelation of God and the final prophetic mediator of God's will. How simple for us this morning. How simple. Do you want to know what God is like? Do you, want to go, do you want to grow as a Christian in your love for God and your love for neighbor? Listen to Christ. How simple, right? Listen to him. Heed his word. He alone relieves our ignorance. He alone opens to us who God is and the and God's work in redemption, because he alone is God come to speak to us. How simple. Here's the rub, though. It is not enough if Christ only came to speak. It is not enough if all he did was come to speak. Christ did not merely come to say something. He came to do something. He came to deal with man's greatest problem. And he alone is qualified to do such work. Let's continue to this next passage. We read, After making purification for sins, he sat down. This is a small phrase with massive implications. Right? So in the Old Testament... The prophets spoke for God to the people. But God set apart certain individuals, priests, to mediate or be a go-between for the people to God. These were priests. 
And this was an absolute necessity, considering the condition of the people and the nature of God to the people was sinful. And sin makes us guilty before God and his throne. Because God is a holy God. He's a holy judge. Sin cannot dwell in his presence. He must punish it. So God set apart priests to mediate for unholy people before a holy God. Take the hour. One priest specifically made annual sacrifices for the sins of the nation. This was the high priest on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Without the high priest, the offering, uh, offering sacrifices on behalf of the people, God's judgment would lash out against the nation. But because of sacrifices, God was merciful. But there's a problem. Priests die. They die. And they have to be replaced. And not only that, but we read in Hebrews 10, verse 11, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. The priest not only had to sacrifice for his own sins because he was also sinful, but he had to offer these sacrifices repeatedly, over and over and over again, year in and year out. The sacrifice, the offerer, the priest was insufficient, and the sacrifices were insufficient as well. So, What's going to make a difference, right? Year in and year out, they come, they have to make sacrifices for themselves, and they have to keep making sacrifices because sacrifices themselves are insufficient to absolutely take away sins. What's going to make a difference? Well, we continue to read. For when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Christ. He came as the great high priest. He came as a, the offerer and the offering. The high priest who was without sin himself and who offered himself as a perfect sacrifice for sin. As a man, he came as we are. He was tempted and yet he was without sin. He walked in perfect obedience to God's law. And he obtained righteousness for a people. And as God, he could do what no one else could do. He could be perfect. He could die as a perfect substitute for a sinful people. He could be the wrath-exhausting substitute. He bore our sins on the tree, sins that were not his own. He was a substitute for us. Because Christ is the God-man, his sacrifice 
has infinite value and could secure salvation for all those for whom he died. Because of his obedience, all those who come to him in faith are clothed in his righteousness. Right? We're all going to appear before God one day in one of two kinds of apparel. We will either be clothed in our sin and without any covering, standing before God's judgment throne alone. Or we will stand before God's throne and Christ, our great high priest, will come beside us and place over our filthy robes his glorious and beautiful robes of righteousness, clothing us in his righteousness alone and making us acceptable before a holy and just God. If you're here today and you have not placed your faith in Christ, you have no appeal before God's judgment throne. You stand before God in sin, naked, alone, deserving judgment. And there is nothing that you or any of us can do to make us pleasing before him. But you turn to Christ in faith, trusting him as your high priest, he who can make you right before God, you will find him ready and willing favor, Savior to make you right before God. When on that day, you stand before God and Christ stands with you. Friend, turn in faith to Christ. And if you're here today and you have placed your faith in Christ, rest in him. Rest in him. He's done the work to redeem your life from God's judgment. He alone is your righteousness before God. And in him, you're a recipient, not of God's judgment, but of the love that the Father has for his own son. He is your great high priest who intercedes for you before the Father. Because of this, the author of the Hebrews says, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And this is intercession of Christ. It does not end. It continues now that your great high priest continues to intercede for you before God's throne. And we need this because our, our, our best works our super awesome great prayers that like blow everyone away. Everything that we, our worship, our heart's motivations, they're still stained with sin. They're still stained with sin. Even they do not make us right before God. But what makes them right is the fact that they're done in Christ's name because he intercedes for us before the Father. And that he is making us acceptable. He alone makes us acceptable before God. 
That's all that we say and we do in this life. We do in Christ's name. Because in Him alone are we made acceptable before God. Friends, Christ alone is the sole object of our faith. Because He alone is our priestly mediator who makes us acceptable before a holy God. Amen? Christ came as the great high priest to be the offerer and offering to bring peace and reconciliation between a holy God and sinners. But we ought not to think that Christ just came to do this thing and now he's left and now he's just sort of like waiting for people to show up. Like waiting for people to come to him in faith. No. Christ is very active right now in the world and in the life of his church. Finally, we read, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This statement is uh, related to the previous statement that Christ is the heir of all things. This is, this is kingly language. The position that Christ occupies in his exaltation is one of ultimate authority. See, the king is a, another office that is, should be very familiar to us in the scriptures. The king in the Old Testament was the leader of the nation. As head of the nation, they represented God to the people. There again, mediations, a stand, a go-between, an in-between. He represented God to the people. They were tasked with leading the people in righteousness, right? Away from Egypt to Canaan. Away from slavery to freedom. Away from death to life. But we haven't picked up on the theme yet. Surprise, surprise. The kings, even the best of them, were beset with so much sin, right? Even David, right? The, the king of kings, the, probably shouldn't phrase it that way. Uh, David, the sort of king par excellence in the, in the life of Israel, the king that every king should have aspired to be like, had an affair with Bathsheba, killed her husband in a time of war when he shouldn't have even been home to do any of those things. He was himself sinful. And we see that, right? The, the kings are supposed to lead the people in righteousness and triumph, in, uh, triumph over their enemies. Yet king after king after king after king is wicked and sinful. And only some of them are decent. If you ever read Kings, right? They walked in their father's steps, led the sin, led the, the nation in the sins of the Jeroboam, for instance. And worse yet, by the time you get to the end of this lineage of kings, I think in Second Kings, if I'm remembering correctly, Zedekiah is the last king. And after him, there isn't another king. So what's happening here? Kings are wicked. 
Now there's no king. What? God promised David a very particular promise in 2 Samuel. We read God's promise. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. If there's no king, well, who's this next king? Who's this king whose kingdom is going to be established forever? Who's this king that's going to break this sin cycle? Matthew 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. This is a royal genealogy. That Jesus is not just any king in the line of David. He's the king in David's line. He's the one, the offspring who has come from David's body. The true king. The one ultimately promised to him. And not to spoil Matthew, right? Like, sorry, spoiler warning. uh, But by the time you get to the end of Matthew, after Christ dies on the cross, after he is resurrected from the tomb, Jesus says this, he says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of, uh, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is just more kingly language. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. All authority. And not only that, when we continue in Hebrews, the book of the Hebrews, some, some think is a, is a sermon that is ex, an exposition of Psalm 110, verse 1, where David prophesies. He says the following. He says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus Christ is our righteous king who sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. He rules and reigns now in heavenly places. All authority in heaven and earth is his and his enemies by his death and his resurrection have been placed under his foot feet and are continuing to being placed to be placed under his feet. But you might ask, how is do how is he doing this? How is Christ doing this? Where is he? I don't see him. How does Christ have all of this authority? How is Christ ruling and reigning right now? I'm, I'm anxious. I'm tired. I'm sick. My body is falling apart. There's turmoil in my family. I have struggled personally with sin day in, day out. There's, the world is jacked up. How in the world is Christ ruling and reigning right now? How are his enemies being placed under his feet? How is he crushing them? Friends, he is a king over his church. And he rules and reigns through his word and his spirit. And as his word and his spirit go out there and in here, he's crushing his enemies. He is crushing his enemies. His enemies are being placed under his feet as sin is being destroyed and righteousness 
is ruling and reigning in his church. Friends, and you need not look to any, there's lots of examples we could look to. The primary one, we were all once enemies. Loyal subjects to sin, Satan, and the world. Not caring about God, but hating Him. But as a gracious king, by word and spirit, Egypt turns us from our rebellion and faithful service, our hate to love, our death to life. Christ, as a king, has made his enemies his friends. And when we come together in this place, on the Lord's Day, in the worship of our God, Christ is ruling as King. And we meet with Him in word and spirit. Right? The church isn't just some like building that we come to where we're like sort of playing something out. This is a genuine interaction with the living God. And I like one author puts it. He says, the church on the Lord's Day, when the church gathers, when it assembles, it becomes an embassy. Sovereign land of the kingdom of heaven. And in it, Christ the King gives us marching orders. Amen? That when we meet with Christ by word and spirit, he tells us who we are. He gives us orders as to what we ought to do in the world. We see, so what is it? We're supposed to live as Christians. That he continues to minister to us in word and spirit, even when we're not in this place. That when we are in a discipling relationship, when we just disciple each other, right? We'll take the, the trademark logo off of it. We're just discipling one another. We're just speaking truth into each other's lives. We're ministering to one another the word of Christ. As a king, Christ is ruling and reigning over our hearts and lives. And he's placing his enemies under his feet as we trust him, as we repent of sin, as we do good works, as we encourage one another in word, with the spirit. And when we go out into the world and we tell our unbelieving friends, our family, our neighbors, the glorious gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ. We can trust that Christ is advancing the line as he turns enemies to friends because by his word and his spirit, he saves us. Amen? Friends, Christ is the sole object of our faith because he alone is our kingly mediator who is leading us in righteousness through his word and his spirit. Brothers and sisters, why Christ alone? Why Christ alone? If you haven't noticed, it's because the entire Old Testament was pointing to him 
all of God's promises, all of God's purposes, all of His words find their apex in the person and work of Jesus Christ as a mediator between God and His people. That Christ alone is the final prophet who mediates God's will in salvation to us. That Christ alone is the great high priest whose mediation makes us right with a holy God. And Christ alone is our kingly mediator who is leading us in righteousness by His Word and Spirit. Friends, the answer is Christ because it's always been Christ. And there is no one else to turn to but Him. Friends, we go out from this place and continue to turn to Him because Christ is our prophet, priest, and king. He alone is the sole object of our faith. Amen? Let's pray. Holy, gracious, immense, loving, wonderful God, we come to you this morning in Christ's name alone because we know in him you speak and you save. Lord God, I pray that you would give us strength and mercy, that in our sin, we would always remember Christ and go to him, that as we work, we would work in his name, that in our speech, we would always speak of him. God, be gracious to us and to those out in the world who have yet come to Christ. We pray and we ask these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Because at this time, as the people of God, we have the privilege to come together and partake of the Lord's Supper. It's a, in this moment that we believe Christ's words, that his body and his blood is for us. We, it is in this moment that we rest and remember his priestly work, that he offered up his body to be broken and his blood to be shed on our behalf. And as a king, that as we come, as we come in faith, that Christ spiritually feeds us with his body and his blood as we eat this meal together. And we see this, a glimpse of it, when we read 1 Corinthians 10, 16. It says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Indeed, friends, it is a participation in the body and blood of Christ as we come to partake by faith, by his spirit, we participate in Christ together. If you know Jesus, this meal is for you, and he gives it to you 
for remembrance is the spiritual nourishment. So when you come, remember Christ. Look at those elements. Yes, Christ, Christ's body, Christ's blood. These are visible elements that he's given us to remember his body broken and his blood spilled. If you're here and you don't know Christ or or you've not been baptized into his church, we ask that you would please refrain from partaking. This is a covenant meal for covenant people. And we just, we ask that you refrain so that we can be faithful as a church to the scriptures. But if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, please come talk to me or any one of the elders or really any member of this church. We would love to be able to talk to you about the glorious gospel of Christ Jesus. So, when you're ready, we'll all stand, come down the middle. Oh, now I want to offer, uh, sorry, the servers, please come forward um, to uh, serve the elements. As you come forward, just take a uh, piece of bread and a cup and then go back around and sit. And please wait to partake. Um, as we will partake, we'll partake of this meal together. So when you're ready, please come.